0: We'll <laughs>
1: Welcome to the fourth season of Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Stories. This is Anne Marie Zanzel, your host, and I am so excited to share some changes to our podcasts that are really great, and I think you'll be as excited as I am about it. First of all, we will be dropping a new podcast every other Friday. This is at the request of our listeners who wanted to hear more secondly my producer barb Rollinson will be joining me as a conversation partner as we discuss things coming out barb is a fellow in lifer and also the mom of a queer kid and so she has a lot of insight and experience to share with us and thirdly we're going to be focusing also on the beyond Love to hear your coming out stories, but I want to hear the beyond. Sometimes magical things happen when we come out and we have a life that we could have never imagined. Many of us say this is the best thing that we've ever done. So let's get started. Welcome to the show. Tell me your story. Hi, welcome to another episode of Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Stories. I am so excited for our guest today. We have two of them. So first I wanna introduce Pastor Lazareth Jameson. They are a queer and non-binary chaplain out of St. Louis, Missouri, serving trans people and often underserved LGBTQ folks in St. Louis, Missouri through their organization, Lot's Wife, Tran and Queer Chaplaincy. They have a master's of divinity degree from Andover Newton Theological School and an undergraduate degree in teaching woodshop from North Carolina State University. They live with two large elderly orange cats with anxiety and are currently learning to make stained art glass as a hobby, Nick Mundwiller, is a queer activist, educator, and organizer who recently left Missouri in search of safer pastors and pastures, not pastors, pastures, and more opportunities <laughs> in Fresno. Nick has a master's in theological studies from Harvard Divinity School, where they studied the intersection of religion, ethics, and politics, and has been involved in activism through education and change work across the country. Nick is a gamer, comic nerd and historical cooking fanatic. Welcome Laz and Nick. Full disclosure, Laz and I met last summer at something called Les Camp in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and we had a fabulous time together. So that's how I got to meet Laz and learn a bit a, a little bit about their work, and through Laz I became connected to Nick. So Laz and Nick,
0: tell me your stories. Well, hello. So, this voice belongs to Pastor Lazarus Justice Jameson. And I am, uh, yeah, like Anne Marie said, proudly out of St. Louis, Missouri. Although, just like in Tennessee, um, where you are based, like there is a whole lot of frightening things happening. But I would love to tell you a little bit, Anne Marie, uh, about um, my story and a little bit about coming out. So, I came from pretty conservative kind of folks, pretty conservative political uh, family, conservative religiously, or and when they got tired of that, they just kind of went no religion. Um, but I, you know, the family that I had come from was, um, had some, a lot of abuse and um, struggled with, sub- continues to struggle with substance abuse. And I really wanted structure and I wanted a different way of being because I knew I didn't want their conservative politics and their party, you know, party life leading to kind of destruction. So I sort of rebelled into much more religious fundamentalism. Um, so I, you know, uh, landed at a conservative Christian congregation in middle school and high school. Uh, we moved around a lot, so I was in a number of places. And then in college, I joined uh, essentially a cult that promised that you know, if you followed their tenets, you did church with them basically every day. And, you know, you led the right things. You did the right evangelism and, you know, all these things out of college, you would get married and have a happy, successful marriage. And I bought it. I bought it. You know, I really, I bought the, you know, I bought the structure. I bought the, all of that. I mean, I love Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I met Jesus somewhere along the way. And I found this Jesus who loved me in my nerdery and, you know, and loved me despite the background I came from. Right. But I knew that I, I could, I could tell the story is like, I didn't figure out that I was queer till later, but I think really, like, I knew, like, I I had a best friend in elementary school that I loved, right? That I, that was a crush better, bigger than all the boys that I, you know, had little crushes on, right? Um, but like, but I knew, like, there was no way to come out about that, right? Like, that would have, I mean, it would have sent me to conversion therapy, you know, and, and worth and so I, in college, like, again, those feelings come up and I'm like, Oh no, but I'm in this system. And like, and I have to follow this system. There's the way to heaven and all this. And so I end up, um, I, I have a best friend. His name is ransom. I love him deeply. I fall, I fall madly in love with this man and we get married out of college and, you know, and he's a nerd. And, you know, we were long story short, we have a like, a um, we're in a faith system that doesn't believe in mental and physical health care, because you should have enough faith to not have to deal with any of that. And, of course, that's not how anything works. He struggled with some major mental health stuff. And he, um, trigger warning, like, Uh, You know, uh, took like died, um, took his own life. And when I was 24, when that happens, I kind of leave the church. But again, my and the church has no place for me. My queerness is become starts, I think it's harder and harder to hide, because I'm starting to reinvent myself. Um, but again, I date a whole series of men and I increasingly, am just like, this isn't working, but I don't know who I, how I'm allowed to be who I am in the world. Right. I, I end up in grad school. I go to seminary. Um, I could have come out in seminary instead. I start dabbling. You know, I came from such a anti LGBTQ place that like in seminary, it was really radical for me to like have friends who are trans and queer. Right. But like, but I don't allow myself to do that. I even serve at LGBTQ church. I served MCC Boston, right? I'm like, everyone assumed, but I wasn't ready to say it, right? When I was uh 30, I started um I set my OK Cupid to show both men and women because I was like, well, what do women post in their profiles? I mean, you know, all the things that people do to, you know, as they're like coming out to themselves. Um, I start dating my first girlfriend, Pulse Massacre happens, and I come out with, alongside of tens of thousands of other folks the day after the Pulse Massacre, um, just in order to be able to grieve with the community that I belong in. Kind of fast forwarding that, um, you know, I uh, later on really start having deep gender feelings and, you know, all the ways of woman doesn't feel right to me. So I, again, find myself in trans community, right? Like put myself in the thing because I'm not ready to deal with it, but I gain the, (laughs) I gained the language, right, um, that I needed and in the in the, in the support. And so I came out around 35, um, but I'm 37, 34, 35. But it was and actually like, I guess right before, well, it wasn't that much before COVID. And actually, I had been in a long process of coming out, but I was asked to do the prayer for the city's like council meeting, um, Board of Alderman meeting. Um, for the Stonewall 50th anniversary, and the newspaper was there, and they asked me my pronouns. I, I couldn't lie, so I said they, them, and then had to like immediately turn to go to Facebook and be like, before you see this on the news. <laughs> so I don't keep meaning to come out in these like more dramatic ways, but so it is. But yeah. That's that's mostly my story. And I serve trans and queer people here in the city of St. Louis. There are a few LGBTQ congregations, but what we've really, and, you know, welcoming places, and there's increasingly more, which is great. Um, but what we really found was that um, trans folks, leather folks, poly folks, sex workers, the people really that I'm serving were really underserved, even in places, you know, they were too far to the margins of these kind of other places that, you know, were, not we're really well prepared to serve you know pretty white gay men with you know fancy jobs but we're not so sure what to do with my folks and so you know northern folks you know, et cetera and so um kind of creating a space to to companion them um and walk through life stuff with them so i'm anyway, really glad to be here and again and i deeply appreciate the friendship of you and your uh, beloved wife Wow. thank you and you know I, I have
1: a really quick question and you said something really interesting you said that when your spouse completed suicide, that there was no place for you in the church? And I understand what you mean, but for people who are not from conservative Christianity, can you tell them what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so I, the community that I was a part of, the cult that I was a part of, um, was a college-based movement that used to do evangelism by bus, and, you know, I thought they could take over all of the campuses, and therefore the world, and Anyway, I, and in that the gender roles were really pretty strict, but also like the access to sexual health information was incredibly strict. And like, if you come from a more progressive religious space, like you might've had sex said in your church, or, you know, at least you people would talk about it. But in this kind of context, you were either like for, as a woman, right? Cause I, I if you can't see me, I, I am a non-binary person. My pronouns are they, them, but I was raised a woman, if that isn't clear. Uh, and so anyways, a so woman in this, in this context, um, I was, uh, taught that, you know, like you're either a single woman or you're married and like two weeks before you get married, you join the married women's small, you know, they, they pull you into this thing and then they kind of teach you how horrible, like sex is going to be and why you have to submit to your husband and why it's never, you know, like, it's just kind of awful, but that's the first time you're allowed to talk about it and, and those sort of things. And so like when my husband died. I know about sex. I am not a virgin. You can't undo that knowledge, right? And not only that, but like, but but there's something, I mean, there is something really powerful like across the experience of like people who actually get to live into their sexuality and are stopped repressing so much about themselves and are allowed a little bit more freedom, like really do have, you know, you gain ability to express yourself in other ways too, right? Anyway, and so so I'm, a, so I'm an empowered Non-virginal woman who now suddenly doesn't have a husband. Oh no, I'm dangerous, right? And so dangerous. No, uh, yes. And so, like, where do I go? Like, if they're gonna slot me into the single woman or the married women, I'm neither, right? I'm mm-hmm. neither in both. And mm-hmm. and I'm dangerous to both because I show the single women, like, you know, I know things they don't know, and the married women. I'm a walking example of why these promises are not true and why this system is broken. And so it's hard for them. And, you know, and, and so, uh, yeah. So that's really what that meant was that like, there was no place for me and, and also our clergy, like are, we're not educated at all. Right. right. And like, right. so they're saying really destructive things and like, cause they don't have any background, you know, it's just, it's, there are better ways to handle the situation, but yeah. But so there was no place for me, but I'm not saying that like, if, but I think that the places where, like I have served, Emory served, like Nick has served, like there are we. There's a much higher chance that, like, if something tragic happens in your life, that those places are more welcoming. But in my particular circumstance, like, there was no place for me.
1: Oh, and I've had other, like, very conservative Christian women on from you know before they came out, and I have heard like. So I was grew up in progressive Christian. Well, no, I was sort. You know, I sort of went. I went from, you know, right to left, you know, in my journey in my life. And so I was like sort of aware of it, but like, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's just like unbelievable what the shame that is put upon women in mm-hmm. these um, cultures. So yeah. Nick, I would love to hear your story.
2: Yeah, sure. So I always find it a little bit funny how Laz and I's stories involve so much of the same elements, but in like a completely. Different and opposite kind of order, almost. Um, So, I was raised in a religious setting that I found really great and really supportive for me in a world that was not great or supportive of of me. Um, I have always had massive discomfort with myself and my body. um, And a lot of that came way before I had language around gender. I just knew that there was something about me that I wasn't fitting in. This peg that I was supposed to, and like mm-hmm. my my family is a very gendered family, right? All of the guys before me and my sister, all of the guys did sports, and my female cousins were prom queens and all dramatically older than us. So for Christmas, they would get me dresses from Neiman Marcus, and my sister so excited, and I just feel so uncomfortable and like I don't belong here. Um, and church was the one place where I really did feel like I belonged. And probably part of that is in my age group at the church where I was growing up, it was me and 14 boys in my age group. So that was the one space where like, you could be yourself. Those, yeah, those gender restrictions weren't put on me, right? Like I I think back to like waiting in the back seat of my mom's car while we're going through McDonald's and that Happy Meal toy is going to come with a Barbie, but I want the Hot Wheels. And that's something weird. Except for when I'm in this group of so many children that the teacher is overwhelmed, that we're just gonna do it how we would do it for all boys, even though Nick is here with us, and Mm -hmm. that became the space where I really became myself and got really tied into what the church was saying about loving other people. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm an activist. I've been involved in the Ferguson movement, and when people ask like, "How did you become an activist and organizer?" My answer is like, when I was five years old at church, Mm -hmm. and those lessons clicked together of like oh, we're supposed to fight for the people who are getting stepped on. That seems so clear and so easy and really became a driving force in my life so that even at an early age, I was like, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to be the pastor that goes and changes how this church is not exactly doing the right thing. And so as I was kind of coming into development and understanding myself, I'm also understanding my faith background better and watching as lesbian women are being stripped of their ordination rights and are being fired from their jobs. One of the big Methodist stories of a lesbian being defrocked happened when I was like 10 or 11 years old. So as I'm starting to finally understand what is this thing that's keeping me from fitting in, I'm also understanding that this job that I so desperately want and have been planning on having throughout my whole childhood is a job I can't have if I don't fit into the right. Fox.
1: Hey, listeners, if you're tuned into this podcast episode, I'd say there's a pretty good chance that you, just like Barb, have experienced a catalyst relationship. If your catalyst relationship has ended, we know it can be so very painful.
3: If that's the case, first of all, big virtual hugs to you because I know how much it hurts when you break up with your catalyst. It is so painful.
1: It is, and I know because I have worked with hundreds of women who have had the same experience. If you find yourself struggling to recover from the end of your Catalyst relationship, then Barb and I have an opportunity for you that I think you really will love.
3: That's right! So Anne-Marie and I will be holding an in-person workshop this spring, that is exclusively for queer women, non-binary people who need support to recover from the end of their catalyst relationship.
1: And we're holding this workshop in my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee from May 16th through 19th. And this is exclusively for people who have had catalyst relationships.
3: You know, breaking up is never easy, but there is something uniquely painful about the end of a catalyst relationship. That is hard for people who haven't experienced it to understand. And in this small group, and we have room for just five participants, everyone who is participating is in the same boat. They've all had catalyst relationships too.
1: And you know what's really nice over the course of the workshop, you can share your story in a safe place, be in the company of people who truly understand what you're going through and learn tools to help lift yourself up and gain perspective on what you've experienced
3: that's right and we're going to be doing some group work meditation exercises but we're also going to have some fun too of
1: course you can't come to nashville and not have fun right (laughs) that's right (laughs) We are going to go to the world famous lipstick lounge and it's one of the last remaining lesbian bars in the U.S. And we're going to take you downtown for some good old fashioned honky donk fun.
3: Yeehaw. Well, I can't wait. This is going to be such a blast.
1: So if you need help getting over the loss of your catalyst relationship, Barb and I encourage you to check out our upcoming workshop.
3: The link to the workshop information page is in the description for this podcast episode. So just hit the link. And you'll learn all about what we're doing. And if you can, please join us. And if you can't, that's okay.
1: We will have more retreats in the future and we can add you to our workshop retreat newsletter list.
3: Join us, make friends, do some healing, have some fun and be in the company of people who really get you. Just click that link below and we hope to see you at the workshop. Yes. So I
2: in high school switched to being the Number one straight advocate, right? Like, it's not that I'm gay, it's that I think that gay people need to be able to be ordained, and that's really important. It's not that I'm gay, but I think gay people should be get, getting married in the church. And at the same time, I'm in the locker room at gym class telling myself, oh, I want to look like her. That's why I'm noticing it. It's not that I want her, it's that I want to be her. I admire her. I I admire her. And then looking back, it's like I admired her in a way that I didn't admire any of the dudes who I was trying to date. Right. And much like Lazarus was saying, I had this one best friend from kindergarten through high school. And the intimacy that we had was totally what other people were experiencing in their high school dating relationships that I didn't Realize was supposed to be in those spaces, right? I didn't realize that that intimacy was supposed to be the romantic Mm -hmm. pieces. Mm -hmm. So I went off to college with, you know, my number one concern is gay rights, and I am an ally doing this work. And that kind of stuck for about a year in college until after, you know, courses in religious studies and philosophy, I got really angry at the church institution and was like, F this, if you don't want me, I don't want you. I'm coming out of the closet, right? And so when I left, the church i you know kicked down the closet door and i identify as queer and that means all these different things i identify as polyamorous and you can't tell me what rules to follow and i really got to explore this almost like anarchy space where i wasn't Absolutely. having to fit in any box i get to be in all of the boxes all of the time at once uh and then i ended up back in the church right i go through like a you know, some really radical years and I'm doing really radical um, protesting and getting arrested and all this kind of stuff. And then as I age, I start to tighten it up and recognize, oh no, I'm feeling that need to do organizing in the church, especially post Ferguson, right? As a white person who's from a community where the KKK adopted the highway in front of my house. It's like, Ooh, it's time to go back and get involved with church in as change work, And that's when I felt like I had to tighten everything up. Right by that point, I was married to someone who was born male, despite uh, having a lot of different gender kind of expression going on. And it was like, okay, how can we tighten up to fit into these boxes again where I can still be queer, but in a way that's not going to be too much or too offensive? And I bought a lot of dresses. And y'all, I hate dresses, yeah, but I felt like. I can keep my men's haircut as long as I wear a dress and no one will get too upset with me. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was struggling very intensely with my family. Mm-hmm. I moved home from grad school and my family is a very alcohol dependent family on top of all those gender structures. And so while I felt like I couldn't be myself at work, I was also experiencing, you know, this re-strengthening of the systems of abuse from my childhood and I myself Developed a really bad drinking problem Mm -hmm. and really felt lost. Ultimately, kind of was getting towards rock bottom and had this realization of this is killing me. Not being myself is killing me. And I can't be myself with my parents, right? Because this is just too much harm and too much hurt. So I got sober and kind of cut off contact with my parents. And then, really quickly, the light bulb flashed on that, like, I really, Identify with gender nonconforming. And this is years after I've been aware of that as a term, as I've had friends using they, them pronouns. But, you know, three months away from the crutches I was using and the systems that were locking me in, I just had this aha moment of like, oh, that's been it. And so I chopped my hair off even shorter than it usually is cropped and had a shaved head for a while and bought my first binder and took the eye off Nikki. And and have been myself ever since then, um, and I'm not sure how much the world can see a, that much of a difference between the before coming out and the after, um, especially as I'm someone with really feminine features. Mm-hmm. But just me getting to call myself my own identity and getting to own that has made a huge difference for myself, my self esteem, and my mental health. Um, even if People still read me as female a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so interesting. I hear what it, it's
1: universal, the coming out experience, um, because I've heard obviously the same things before. Like what I've heard before, I, you know, a lot of times people in the later in life communities are huge allies, <laughs> and it's like internalized homophobia. It's like, listen, I, anybody can be gay. I'm gonna support your rights to be gay. I'm gonna support your rights to be trans, but the only people who, who person who can't be gay or trans is me. <laughs> I'm not allowed to be that. And that's like the internalized homophobia that a lot of us experience or the compulsory heterosexuality, however you wanna call it. You know. Um, I also, I, I have a question of curiosity. Are you still with your
2: spouse? Oh, so that is my former spouse. So I am no longer with that spouse because I recognize that we were dating in college. We grew up together. Mm -hmm. Um, His mom didn't want us moving in together without us getting married. So we got married. And even as we were planning the wedding, it was, well, it's not going to feel like a wedding. It's going to feel like a Halloween party. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it, there were a lot of red flags. And I think both of us, this compulsory heteronormativity, I think, was yeah. part of it for both of yeah. us, especially for my ex as someone from a Filipino home. Like, his queerness was something that was really kept on the on the down low. But I'm mm-hmm. actually now with a cis previously before me identified as straight man, um, mm-hmm. which confused everyone when I came out as gender nonconforming and then happened to marry another person born male at birth. Um
0: mm-hmm. but yeah. Okay. Um, So one of the
1: things that I also heard, and I think, Nick, this is where our stories intersect, is that religion also was a really huge place of safety for me growing up because I grew up in an alcoholic home (laughs) and I would go. I was Catholic. I was raised Catholic. And, you know, so much of what you said resonated with me because, like, I was raised in post very post-Vatican II Catholicism, which was, like, 19, early 1970s, 1973, 1974, like, I was the first altar girl ever to serve in my diocese, and, you know, I mean, that's how, like, my, how long my religious roots go back, you know, and, um and, and it was, like, I remember my religion books, I went to Catholic school, and, you know, they had, like, was I always? I wrote in my book that it was like r- religious books written by a former flower flower child because you know there was book, gun barrels with little flowers in them and stuff like that. And so that was um, what I learned you know, in the Catholic church that I grew up in was about marginalization and being in being in partnering with those who have less than and who are on the margins. And that's where that's where my faith tradition has come from. Um, All three of us have gone to to some form of divinity school and you make me laugh because Andover Newton, man. (laughs) That is, like, lesbian has the heaven
0: there. (laughs) When I was there, um, the, uh, like, the border of the website, like, where you click all the different, like, menus, um, options was definitely a rainbow flag, but I was definitely the straightest straight who was really working on learning how to support my queer brethren, right? So.
2: Do you yeah.
1: laugh? Now? Do you both laugh now when you like think like do you roll your eyes? Do you do one of those things?
2: Like, oh I just appreciate With- all the people who met me when I like first came to college in an orientation. And everyone's like, oh honey, you're at least bisexual. Like I laugh at all of the people who could see so clearly the parts of me that I like had been working so hard to hide.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And they could yeah. see. Yeah. And, and everyone else knew.
0: yeah yeah people really made space for me that I didn't know I needed right and you know when I when I came out I like the people who had been I lost a lot of people because I was still holding on to some of these fundamentalists and you know um but I like so many of the folks who had been making all this space was like great Right. We're so glad we knew you were always belonged here, you know, like, and we were just, you know, ready for you to declare your truth. So we're so proud that you have, you know, like, um, and that was anyway, that was really incredible. So, but yeah, I laugh. I am, I'm not a, because at this point, I'm a walking rainbow flag. Like nobody in their right mind thinks I'm straight. Um, and so like, I just, it's so funny because I was like, I, I can't pretend to be a straight ally, even if it would be helpful for my safety. Now, you know, yeah,
1: yeah. So. you just yeah, you know, and also too, what I also hear that is very typical of people is that the first step they make is around sexual orientation, and then the next step for some people, it's it starts to go into gender, especially when people are older because they don't know where to
2: start. And so I th- do think they start with sexual orientation first. Well, and I think we need to remember where we came from because like, and, and how much change has been in vocabulary, especially around gender. Because I think of when I you know, first went to college, I graduated high school in 2007 and like, I, you know, had a minor in women and gender studies and was involved in, you know, ran a queer activist group. So I was really engaged in the active language at the time. And like androgynous was the term that was um, being used yeah. rather than gender non-conforming. And like, oh, I'm not really androgynous because especially I was in Chicago at the time that has a very specific fashion look that I don't have. And so that's when I really leaned on being butch. And I wore, you know, dress shirt button ups all the time and started shopping on the men's side of the store. But that identity as butch was not actually tied to gender in a way that I understood. It wasn't until language had changed. And then I looked up and was like, oh, that term makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's because it took a while for us to find the right language to talk about gender.
1: Yes, especially too, if you're coming from a religious background, because. Even if you come from a progressive church, a lot of this stuff is just totally ignored, and so that like we don't we don't see it. I'm I, I'm sure there are some progressive churches out there that now that do much a much better job. It. But um, so all three of us have gone to some sort of seminary or divinity school, and all of us have gone to progressive um, divinity schools or seminaries. And my biggest question for you both is. How has you, this is really a very loaded question, but how has your experience of faith changed as you have embraced your authenticity, especially around gender?
2: So I had a class in seminary that was very helpful to me because when I was in seminary is when I'm starting to have gender rumblings before I shove it back in the closet to get to to work in the midwest um, and i took a queer theology class and we kind of covered a different section of christian history in every episode, uh, every class and we had one that was on the um, medieval art of jesus's side wound and how mm-hmm. there's this whole tradition of very sexualized feminine images of jesus's side wound and there's a painting of you know, Paul being fed from the side wound in a way that makes it look like Jesus is breastfeeding. And all of the sudden in this class with a trans professor and other people who are having gender feelings, that was a moment where all of the sudden, like this discomfort inside me with my body is something that I'm now seeing on my savior's body mm-hmm. as something being celebrated. And for me, even before I had fully come to terms with my own gender identity or even before I fully came out, I started to have this really strong feeling that my not fitting anywhere just got solved in me fitting with this image of Jesus on the cross. And my faith meant something totally different to me because my whole life I, you know, I'm a Jesus-centered Christian, right? Like that's something that I'm really... Jesus's life is really important to me, but Jesus is this dude,
3: and mm-hmm. I'm not,
2: right? right? And I don't really feel like I fit in with the straight narrative, and so what does that mean? And, what, and But then to see a Jesus that is both masculine and feminine at the same time, that really transformed my experience of faith.
1: You know, as being raised Catholic, I understand that because I, like, there was, like, no room for me there, like, and I used to, like, I used to say like, you know, that I would be a nun if my, you know, you can't be a nun if you're divorced, You, your your spouse has to die. And so I would always say some things like, if my ex-husband, now ex-husband died, you know, maybe I would become a nun or something like that because there was no room for me except for being, you know, you know, leading a CCD program, which was like the last thing I wanted to do. And, um, for me, I do believe that Mary is the divine feminine in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and that's why she is so important in that church, because she represents to women like where Jesus, I mean, Jesus being male, God being male, holy, he, 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 and and all the clergy being he, 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 he. And so that's why I think there's such a devotion to Mary in the in the Roman Catholic Church, because people are starving, starving, literally starving for the divine feminine in in faith traditions, you know, both and, you know. So
0: how about you, Les? I think for me, coming out and living into my authentic self, especially around my gender, has really allowed me deeper access to being able to relate and, and be able to, to know people, uh, across more complexities. So like, I, like what really shifted was that like, understanding that like, I am being perceived one way, but I am not that way. Right. I am not, I am not the totality of what it is you assume that I have because I have breasts. Right. Or like, um, or, you know, assumed that I am this way because I have been, you know, raised to fit this mold and it's costly to break that mold, right? Like, just because that, like the story told about me is not the whole and complete picture. And therefore I can believe that same thing, um, about other people too, right? That like, we can look when we look at our scriptures, right? Sometimes, you know, they want to say particular things about, Particular people, but really, like you know. I, so I tend to, in like religious terms, looking at these, um, you know, looking at the characters who are left behind and, or you know, or or march, you know, uh, hated and being like, you know, there's got to be more to this story, right? The woman with ten husbands isn't just, you know, like just running around like being all wild. Like there's like there's got to be more to what what's happened with her or whatever. And so like, I just think like it allows me to identify. Um, with people and, and and really pushes me to, you know, engaging with people like trying to get to the deeper level of like, okay, but like, I understand this is like what you're saying this is happening or you are, but maybe there's more, more to it. Because I think God, like God is big and wide and people have lots of experiences of God and God presents God's self to many, in many forms. And so it just allows me to have a more expansive understanding. Um, which I think is really kind of beautiful. And I, so could I, I didn't say anything about my name. Should I say something about my, uh, so I, so Lazarus is not my birth name. Um, I had a much more feminine uh, birth name, but less, so Lazarus is a character in the Bible who, for whom Jesus like resurrects, like he dies, Jesus goes and brings Lazarus back um, to life. And Lazarus like cries over, or, or, or Jesus cries over the death of of Lazarus. And I think what's really um, the reason that I picked that name, I wanted a name with a Z. Um, but also I think that a lot of my story has involved like coming out in some way or another, like and coming into a rebirth yeah. again and again and again. And like, you know, I hope, like, I don't anticipate coming out as some other LGBTQ identity anytime soon, but now I say that hello tomorrow, you know, <laughs> but, like, but, but I, you know, but coming out into, you know, being like, like, uh, like there's like, there's been coming outs of like undoing the shame that I was raised with, right? And so like constantly re- unlearning like the sexual shame, or the shame of being outspoken, you know, and these sort of things, um, and coming out, you know, into new, like, there's just newness of life. And so reclaiming that um, with this name, I think was really important uh, for my deeper understanding. Well, yeah, and of course, you know, Lazarus came out out of the tomb, you
1: know, (laughs) and so did you know that, like, and I'm sure you guys know, you all know this, in queer theology that, like, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha were a very unusual family, and because they were all single, and there is some belief that they were actually a, a queer man. And and two queer women that were actually partners, Mary and Martha, they weren't actually sisters, and they were actually partners. And so I think it's so appropriate that Laz is your name. I really do.
2: <laughs> and I see. I it, also I see find her. that story so queer. In like, especially because that's where the Jesus wept comes from, right? Yeah, that from this story where his close friend, who he knows he's about to bring back to life, has died. And we still mourn over the death despite the fact that we know that life is coming. That's an extreme amount of intimacy in that relationship, right? That feels very queer to me. Mm -hmm. It
1: does. And um, there's lots of other ones and we can have a whole nother episode about (laughs) the the second story. Like, okay, the next one, one more, and then I'll be done. Um, The uh, Roman centurion and and his servant who he loved. And he went to Jesus to heal his servant, who he loved. And so it is clearly a gay relationship. Clearly. My
2: partner is a Roman historian. That is his passion and his special project. And that's one of the Bible stories that we talk about a lot, because he's like, it is clear. If you know anything about Roman culture and the army and how relationship works, there's no question in this story. Yes, But but church has eliminated that reality that Roman soldiers had a lot of homosexual relationships. Right, right. Absolutely. And so that's the thing is
1: that, you know, like I think Laz said is like, we don't know the rest of the story a lot of the times. And and also, too, it's lost to history a lot of times. So if you don't, if you haven't gone to seminary or are not a Bible geek, you don't know these things, you know, you just don't. So tell me a little bit about so you guys you all have formed a um a network called Welcome Home Network. Can you tell me a little bit about that and and what is its purpose and and what are you trying to accomplish?
2: So uh I'll just start with a little bit more of of my story of how I got to California because I'm not sure if I already covered that but I was working in social justice ministry in Missouri. My position was downsized. My benefits were taken away. I was offered you know, part-time after having a full-time job with benefits because social justice ministry is not the most lucrative thing. So in COVID funding decline, that's the first thing to go. And when I hit the job market, I found that there were very few opportunities for me anymore in, in the place where I lived even less when I put my they them on my resume and switched to using a masculine name. Um, so my partner and I decided that, keeping in mind that it was hard for me to find a job that was really fulfilling my passion and met my talents on top of the fact that it was starting to be scarier and scarier to be a queer person, that it was time for us to take the hint and, and get out. So we applied for jobs all over both coasts and took the first job that one of us got just to get out. I really, now looking back on it, fled Missouri because things were starting to feel so unsafe, and my life was becoming financially untenable because my identity was becoming a problem as I was job searching. So I moved, and then a lot of legislation got worse. And so I'm, you know, staying connected with Laz and hearing about all this stuff going on in Missouri, and just over and over saying, I'm so glad that I got out. I feel so much safer, so much better, even in an area that's for California considered to be really conservative. It's been a huge blessing for my life to be somewhere where I feel safe. And I think that's when Laz and I started thinking about how can we help other people do that.
0: My chosen family has a uh, trans child um, in it. um, And uh, she's in the second grade. She's a um, little nerdy type little girl, um, who likes to wear, um, her hair in pigtails with a giant bow. She has bows on her shoes, you know, and she, like, I recently got to go be parent at a, um, uh, robotics high school or a high school, uh, elementary school robotics competition. She made a little robot, uh, that collects trash. Anyway, the kids, she's so little, like she's this little, beautiful little kid, who, but she's so little that like they were able to reprogram their robot, but they didn't know how to give presentations. Yeah. Cause no one had taught them. And there was a realization during their presentation that this was a problem because, um, her and her two little teammates who are also little nerdy second grade girls, um, were looked like, looked at the board, right. While they, and whispered to the board while they were being asked questions. So like, it's, you know, it's like, so the, what happened, what had happened was, you know, my family started really talking about with all of these expected legislation to change, they were going to have to leave. And they have uh, chosen um, like grandparents in upper, like upstate New York. And so they were like, maybe we'll go there. They toured and we're like, okay, when we, when we have to make the move, this is what we're going to do. I started really you know, reading and feeling like this isn't going to be safe and things are going to escalate quickly. Um, So started really thinking about that too last fall. And I hope that I was wrong, right? I really hoped, you know, um, that things would change even like in, you know, back in October, when I was like, I'm going to leave, but it's going to take me a minute. Um, You know, people were like, Oh, you don't need to do that. And, you know, unfortunately, things have super escalated. Um, But yeah, started talking to because again, I started. Tons of trans people and families started talking about like, so what's the game plan? Like when things get bad, maybe it won't be for three or four years. Now it's now, but when things get bad for us and when it becomes too unsafe, what is your line? Like, when are you going to flee? And what are you going to do? Because we got to start figuring it out now. Some folks have plans and, but, you know, I've been trying to support them in that. Um, But a lot of our folks are super underemployed or, you know, this is the only place they've ever been. This, you know, if you're from middle of nowhere, Missouri, like St. Louis is an incredibly progressive place. And, you know, this is the only like, so how so why would you, you know, so what am I supposed to do? Because maybe everywhere else is scary, too, you know. And so Welcome Home was really kind of formed from a lot of my folks going, oh, my gosh, I need to get out and I have no idea how to do that. And like, I've only been here, you know, I don't have connections anywhere. And like a lot of folks, cause I'm known for doing, you know, the kind of work that I do connect a lot of like folks, some other like uh, call, like cler- clerical colleagues, but other well-meaning folks, some other places being like, Hey, I want to help, but I don't know trans people. What do we do? And so trying to like connect um, the need. So welcome home, we're call So Nick, so I connected to Nick because I am a people person who know, you know, talk to all the folks. And Nick helps get the message good, right? <laughs> um, and, and clearly articulates things in this, as you could hear in this interview, like beautifully, beautifully well. Um, so we're a great team. And Nick and I have served together before um, a number of times doing things. So um, Welcome Home is really focused on helping folks, trans folks and trans families figure out where they want to go and then connecting them to congregations and organizations who are um, willing to support and help them. So, and we've got, and there's a range of, uh, well, I'll let Nick kind of talk about it, but there's um, a kind of range of options for the ways that people can get involved. But our main categories, are like helping people with actual moving, right? And either, you know, helping them figure out how to afford to move packing out here and you know or wherever they're leaving, and you know unpacking where they're there at helping them with jobs stuff like right? like getting you know getting them a affirmative place of employment you know housing right and community you know because it's really important when you've got these i mean literally trans refugees right people right. fleeing for safety and you know fleeing states some of which these states are wanting to pursue them you know criminally still other places like you know it's just awful um but literally like fleeing like you know, attempts to exterminate us. I mean, not to sound like extreme, but that's where we're at. And so, you know, and and helping them come to other places. And there's some talk that some of the national organizations are doing this, but we've seen no movement. So we're doing it. (laughs) And, you know... Happy to partner up with when the national orgs that have a lot more resources and staff to throw at this problem, you know, um, do the you know do something similar. But in the meantime, we you know we're kind of we're doing that with you know starting with folks that we know and connecting in a couple of places. We've got some congregations going and made some connections, but we're ready to kind of gear up and and get a lot more folks involved. So if somebody
1: is trans and is in the South right now um, and starting to feel really really frightened. But also is sort of, you know, like from, the, you know, some of the more rural places, and they may be in Nashville or St. St. Louis, they may be in Orlando, they may be in some places that they think are pretty darn good, but they're like, oh, maybe I should move where we where do they move? Like, where should people move? You know, like my wife and I talk about moving to California a lot. My oldest child is going to get married and hopefully I'll be a grandma at some point in the next couple of years. And so we talk about moving to Oakland because that's where where she lives with her husband. So where should people move?
2: So part of our strategy right now is having congregations kind of stand up and say, where we live is a good place to live. Because we can start with the really obvious ones, right? So California is going to have more protections for trans people. Massachusetts is gonna have more protections for trans people. But a lot of times, especially if you're from a rural region and you haven't maybe traveled to these places, you think of that and you're like, okay, well, I can't afford LA or the Bay Area and I can't afford Boston. So what we really are trying to do is trying to find those smaller, more accessible places to move, where we're also having congregations report that this is a great place to be. So for example, we have a couple congregations that are within kind of the um, extended suburban area around Boston, but are in places that might feel like more of a small town, medium-sized city, and have more options. So um, right now, we're we're encouraging folks, you know, those states that are the ones that we know are going to have protection for trans rights, which tend to be on our coasts, but we have a couple more safe havens in the Midwest. We know Chicago is a lot safer than um, St. Louis, with a lot more trans health options. Um, but yeah, we're trying to open up kind of people's minds. And part of our process, um, the kind of first step for folks might be, can we help you brainstorm where's a great place to live? Because this is also an opportunity for folks not just to flee what's dangerous, but to maybe move towards what is more life-giving, right? So for example, if we have someone who, you know, I'm trans, I feel unsafe here, but I'm really into the arts. Well, have you considered Rhode Island? Rhode Island is a more trans-affirming place that also has a culture that might work for you. Um, So we're willing to connect with people and start from that very beginning process of where might be a good place for me to start looking.
1: Are you working with trans fam- families that have trans children as well? Because, I, you know, I am thinking about like the little, like, first of all, I can't imagine being a parent of a trans child right now, especially in the South. And in, and it's just, it's, as a mom, it is truly horrifying to me. And it makes me very, very angry that the state wants to get involved in the medical care for my child which that should be between between me my child and their their primary practitioner should the state should have i don't i, I just i struggle with it so much and it makes me super super angry so are you doing something with families like that that where they're going to move as a family and and sometimes i think that might be even easier it's somewhat because they get to move as a family and mom and dad when they're looking for employment you know typically aren't trans and so they can get employment a lot easier so I know it's hard for the trans folks to get employment
0: yeah we are working with a couple of families again we're just starting out so we're still pretty we're we're gearing up right um yeah. but we are working with some folks right now um one of the things it like that is facing like the fa- some of the families that I serve here in Missouri um a number of them like have lived like a uh, one of our families is a uh, seventh-generation Missouri family living in that house that the grandparents and great-grandparents built, um, but has a trans child and is likely going to have to flee because the the you know the laws forcibly detransitioning their child. And so, like for those kind of folks, they are highly marketable. They're both really smart, you know. But there's also this embedded family system, you know, like it, it it with them would have to move like 15 other folks. And it's the problem too is not only would they have to give up like the family land and space, but like they're afraid like the housing market isn't the best, right? Like they they're they're pros enough to own a home, but like they don't want to sell at all, much less having to sell at whatever price they can get because they have two weeks to go you know, which isn't what's facing in Missouri, we've got a little bit more time, months instead of weeks, but um, but Florida, that is happening, Texas is pursuing its people, literally people are packing their cars and going, you know, um, and so yeah, so it's a different challenge with families, but also like when we're, I mean, we're really trying to engage congregations that are really wanting people, you know, I'm saying like we want to step up and how do we help, like Please, like, if you've got the capacity, like, come on. Like, you want to, you want to, you don't know what to do with a 20 year old trans person. But golly, we know how to wrap around a family. We've got this huge Mm -hmm. family ministry. Like, gosh, well, boy, well, we can connect some trans families. You know, let's see if we've got anybody that's interested in going that way, and that might your your location might be life giving too. You know, and so, but we are also, yeah, I think I think Nick talking about like finding what's life giving to people and what what really functions, I think, is a big part of this kind of work and the way that 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 people have to be thinking, right? Because, like, I have one of my folks is a um, a trans woman who's got a great tech job, right, and her company. Like said, okay, uh, we understand you have to leave Missouri. Like, here are these options of other places you can also work and work for our company. And so she's headed to um, Detroit, Michigan, and and Detroit, Michigan is making some steps. Right, it's not necessarily like when we think about the safest places forever, forever. It might not be, but for her, op- out of her options, this is a great choice. She's a musician you know, Detroit's a great option. She doesn't own a home, but maybe would like to in the future. Detroit is incredibly affordable, right? You know, we've got, there's, there's queer community if you want that, but there's lots of other kinds of options and there's a congregation there and, and they're working with another set of folks to figure out like how to welcome her. And like, she doesn't need help with a job, but there's particular other things she asks. She's like, okay, this would be helpful. They're figuring out how to partner with her and and be the welcome committee, you know, Uh, and like send people to unpack her and like, you know, and, and like really to, you know, wrap around her to make her transition there doable, you know, because it's, yeah, welcoming her home to a place yes. that's, you know, going to be life-giving to her, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And it, this is where it gets into my like kind of boring Excel file and documents, but we're, we're creating systems for this connection, right? We're not a nonprofit. We're not collecting money to support people, but we're trying to do a really great job of assessing what the need is assessing what the potential to help is and then making those connections. So when we start, you know, interacting with someone who's wanting to flee, we start with a Google form you fill out that tells us, you know, we don't ask a ton of identifying information, but we ask kind of where are you? Do you know where you want to go or not? Would you need help affording housing or just searching for housing? Would you need help looking for employment or would you like some resume workshops? And we kind of assess what is the need. Are you moving by yourself with a partner, with children, with other adults, so that we can really figure out, okay, so if you've got kids, we need to make sure that we start to get a list together of all the school districts in the area. We need our host church to make a welcome packet that's giving this family or this individual exactly what they need and that allows us to match those places that are willing for, to give some financial support, right? And, and I do not have my own kids. My eyes right now are really on our young trans people without family support in rural areas.
3: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
2: say we've got someone who just graduated college, has just come out. They have no family support. You know, $2,000 to get a U-Haul and pack their stuff might be what's keeping them from getting there. So how do we match them with a congregation that's willing to collect enough money in order to cover the U-Haul first, last and deposit for an apartment, right? How can we make sure that whatever that person's stumbling block to being able to, to get out, how can we find a way to start lifting up over that?
1: You know, we can talk about this for a very long time. And, but, you know, sitting here all of a sudden, I had this feeling of like, I can't, I can't believe we're talking about this. Like that this is, I mean, this has become our reality where citizens of this country don't feel, I mean, that's been going on for a really long, 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 long time with people in our country not feeling safe to live their lives.
2: Well, and I think it's been a slide, right? Because I remember it has to be five years ago now, sitting in my kitchen with one of my very good friends who had come to Missouri from New England for graduate school and was Jewish. And he told me, you know, my Nana called me this morning and talked about when do we need to go, that she recognizes what's happening and we as a family need a plan for what to do because anti-Semitism is getting so bad. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that was five years ago that that he felt that way and we increased, right? I was working in Ferguson for a long time and the NAACP says Black folks don't visit Missouri, it's unsafe. Um, I think it's just that things have been getting worse for different groups. And right now the group in the crosshairs is the trans community.
1: So all the information to contact Nick and Laz will be in the show notes. So, and you can also always reach out to me and I am able to, I will get you connected to Laz and Nick, especially the churches out there and the synagogues out there. I know so many church people (laughs) Um, and who want to help. Um, who, who will want, who I know will want to help. I just, I, I, I'd love to have a conversation after this about some things that I was thinking of, but so we talked about coming out in the beginning. Um, and so I end this program all the time with three questions. Did you have a coming out song? And if you did, what was it last?
0: <laughs> um, I didn't, but I do have a recommendation now. So there is a beautiful song. Um, uh, maybe we can stick it in the show notes called I am Samantha. And I forget. Oh, all right, we're going to have to edit it and put in the uh, who's well, who it's by, but um, or just stick it in the show notes. But I am Samantha is a beautiful song about um, a trans femme person who always knew herself to be Samantha, even when they pushed, you know, people pushed her away and tried to make her like small and not Samantha, but she finally gets to embrace it and how beautiful that is. And I like it's it encapsulates so much of like the feeling of what it is like to live authentically. And so it's a, I think it's a good gateway to people who don't have that experience themselves or spend time with people who are, you know, living through this, you know, the joy of, of you know, at whatever cost of being able to be oneself.
1: Um, I think you actually gave us
2: the link to that, I think. So we okay. Have, okay. <laughs> All right, Nick, how about you? Uh, so my song is going to be Love Shack by the B-52 <laughs> and that's been my coming out song since I was a toddler and didn't know it. My dad's um, a musician and is in bands and so I spent a lot of time growing up going out and, and dancing while my dad is playing and that song to me is the best encapsulation of freedom both mm-hmm. like sexually and gender with their lead singer being someone who identified as a bio queen. Um, And that, my love for that song was one of those things that when I came out, I was like, oh, that makes
1: sense. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And book or movie, anything that really, really changed your, or influenced you, changed your perspective or influenced you?
2: So mine for that one is going to be Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which it was just the song Origin of Love that I saw first, that was shown in my freshman year introduction to philosophy class to make a lesson about Plato more entertaining. And it was the first time that I had seen a representation of a drag queen that was so personalized, right? It wasn't at the end of the background of a screen or in a movie. It was in in someone's face and in a trans person's emotions. And I was just like, I have to watch this. I have to watch everything this director has made. I have to watch everything that anyone who ever touched this film did. And that was really my first um, welcome and introduction to thoroughly unapologetically queer art.
0: And Lance, how about you? So I would recommend um, some of the essays and work of Marcella Althaus Reed, um, who I think in seminary I read, um, we read a uh, essay and I get, we'll link it again, um, to uh about um the like she does sexual queer theologies and um the uh essay about um, finding God in a fetish club and like, you know, God, like, where is God in the midst of like orgy and like, God, it, it was like know, about God in kinky boots. Like, and I remember reading that as again, the straightest straight ally who's trying really hard and being like, uh oh, there is a, there's more to this God and following, you know, and like, and, and in liberation and you can find that through like, you know, unlearning the shame around yeah who you are, but also around sex. And I think, so coming from where I came from, like, leaning into learning that queer sexual theologies was really life-changing for me and it's a thing that I continue to figure out how to live into and talk you know talk with my people about uh the other one it would be the poetry of Sappho because you know like all of her yearning is so you know a lot of your people I think probably uh understand (laughs) themselves there yes yes okay and so you know
1: I was thinking about this question it's like how do you describe your life today and usually people end on a very um positive and happy note but I read Nick's uh, Nick, uh Nick, what Nick filled out on the form and can you say more about that Nick?
2: Sure I don't know if I exactly remember what I wrote on the form. You
1: but just life- said you're about your anxiety about it. Yeah
2: life today is is really hard um everything is really scary. I feel very thankful to be in a new place where I'm comfortable expressing my gender in a way I haven't before. But my partner and I are having discussions of, is California a stopover to need to leave the country? Mm-hmm. Uh, how bad is this gonna get? Yeah, it's just it's a very scary and uncertain time. Um, and then myself as someone who's, you know, just relocated across the country to a place where I know no one, I'm also going through that, mourning and difficulty of it wasn't 100% my choice to leave everything I knew behind. Um, And now I'm having to rebuild. And while that's exciting, it's hard to focus on the exciting when it wasn't something that I necessarily picked.
0: Naz, how about you? I'm terrified. Um, You know, I have spent so many years, like I've been serving this particular slice of community for for a good long while all the way through COVID and and through the Trump years, you know, and and um and before that as a pastor in other contexts. And like, you know, we've had incidences where like around Trump, like people were really scared. And you know, but it's like, okay, like we can, you know, we've got, you know, we're gonna be okay. And in this circumstance, like things have shifted and I have to say to my people, no, no, you should be terrified and you should really get out. And Mm -hmm. you, you know, we're going to have to get out in advance of violence, like uh, you really have to go. And that's terrifying. I, you know, I'm having nightmares. I I just, you know, it's, it's really hard to be like the bearer of hope, (laughs) you know, enroll when really like the hope is that there is community, but it's not here, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a safer place coming, right? I, you know, we're, we're in the desert, but actually the desert trip has to be pretty short uh, Mm -hmm. because you got to get out and get to the, you know, get to a land that may or may not, you know, be filled with milk and honey, but at least it's, you know, probably filled with your, you know, appropriate use of your pronouns, right. Mm -hmm. And and your kids being able to get the medical care they need. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I, I want to say too, like, I deeply believe that there, that I believe in the power of community, right. That we have us, right. Like, like, we are gonna be okay. I think that there's just so much despair and that's what the forces against us want, right? But like, God will not abandon us. Like, we is a gift to be trans. And so like, and a gift to be queer. And so like, don't, you know, like there's there's people saying like, you all should just go back in the closet and hide. And I'm like, no, even if that's possible, like you shouldn't, right? Like that, like that's, that leads to our destruction. Like, no, no, like we will protect us. So come out louder. You know, Mm -hmm. like, and we'll, we'll figure it out. And I don't know how, but Mm -hmm. we'll figure it out. But we've got us um, and maybe not in the place that we're currently at. And maybe it's going to take a lot, but like, but, but God and our community will, will, will protect us and and make things better for us and our children. You know, this is the Moses story.
2: We might not have time to let our bread rise because it might be time for us to go, but that doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. And I think your point of like, we might be in a desert journey, but we need to make that desert a little bit short. That reminds me of how, you know, a lot of change makers stick with the idea of like, well, we survived Trump, so we'll survive this. And the reality is you survived it. There's a lot of we, there's a lot of us that didn't make it. And if we stay too long, there might be more of us that don't make it. So let's find that promised land and let's find How can we carry one another, you know, through the opening in the sea while we have the chance?
1: So I'm going to end this on this note, because this show is about coming out and beyond. (laughs) And I don't want anyone to be frightened in the sense that coming out. How am I trying to say is that don't stay in the closet because of this conversation tonight? I know that. I, th- I do believe that Laz and Nick would agree with me that even with all this stuff that's going on, they never want to go back in the closet again. No, and both shaking their heads now if you can't see them. Um, we have this on YouTube too, but if you can't see them, they're shaking their heads now. And um, it is an amazing community to be a part of the queer community. And it is so amazing to be seen by your people and to be recognized by them, especially if you haven't, you know, you're 30 and you're just coming out, you know, and I have no regrets about coming out as a queer person, even with all the shit that's going on right now. And I mean you know, relatively safe as a lesbian, you know, as an older lesbian too. So, you know, I'm relatively safe. Our Our, our trans people, our drag queens are not. And so we have to take care of them.
2: That's what and that, that community we become safe when we find each other, right? right. So, so, that coming out can be scary when we see the systems around, but through that coming out, you've got these other people who are going through it, the same thing with you. You don't have to be going through that fear alone anymore. Right. We're waiting, yeah.
0: yeah, right. We've got us, and coming out is the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know, happened to me to live my truth, and yeah, we encourage folks to, to come out and find us. You know, mm-hmm. we got you. We
1: got you. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tonight's conversation. This is one of the best conversations I've ever had on this program, and I'm really, really appreciative.
3: You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in, so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.